This week on Life and Faith. There's one thing you need to be philosophical, and that's to be born. Philosophy, philosophizing, should be done for everybody. And it should not just be the rock musicians who do philosophy in the streets. One in four Australians are suffering from significant amounts of violence. Balance is important, though. It's best to take off the table this idea that religion is just going to be summarily dismissed from all things public. This is Life of Faith from CPX. I'm Simon Smart. Well, I wonder what you think about when you hear the word philosophy. Is philosophy a subject you love to get your teeth into, or do you imagine it's so esoteric it's not for you? Well, today on Life and Faith, we talk with a philosopher who really thinks her subject is for everyone. Professor Esther Lightcap Meek is a leading figure in the philosophy of knowledge. That's the field of epistemology. But she's no ivory tower academic. She's determined to show why philosophy is for everyone And just by being human, we all qualify as philosophers. Equally, she works hard to make her philosophical ideas practical and accessible. This is philosophy for the street. Her philosophy is connected to a theology that realizes we can't package up our knowledge of God too neatly, yet, she argues, we can know God intimately. I spoke with her on Zoom ahead of her visit to Australia, where in August she will be speaking at the Gospel Conversations Conference in Sydney. I began by asking her about her book, Loving to Know. Now, in that book, she suggested that we all need some epistemological therapy. Well, naturally, I wanted to know what she meant by that. I am proposing that in modernity, we have all implicitly inhaled a dominant presumption about what knowing is. And that presumption is that knowledge is information. Yeah. Well, I have a problem with that. I don't think it's right. So if I'm going to fix that about you, I can't just give you more information. Right, right. So I've got to find a way to do something else. And I actually think, though modernity is really disembodied. It's all about a disembodied mind. You know, we're all having issues with that sort of a thing. I I believe that philosophy is actually bodily felt, which means you've got to find a way to address the philosophy that somebody's embodying. So that takes more of a therapeutic approach than just an information dump. Though I have plenty of arguments, <laughs> but I got to do something else too. I got to make you bodily feel something else. Before we get on to that, though, has your study in this area served as a kind of therapy for you as well? Oh, yeah. I mean, you might see I'm a pretty, well, you haven't seen it yet, but I can be pretty impossibly excitable. (laughs) And right now, I'm a very merry philosopher. Most philosophers aren't as merry as (laughs) I am. So um, I turned from being skeptical about the real to splashing about in it. So I call myself an exuberant realist. So yes, it's been healing. (laughs) Now, when you were a young girl of 13, you started to form what you now recognize as philosophical questions. But your, your deep questions were a bit destabilizing at the time, weren't they? Tell us about that period of your life. 
I recall having two questions that I felt as guilty about the questions as about not having the answers. But one was, how do I know that God exists? And the other was, how do I know that there's a world outside my mind? <laughs> so in other words, how do I know that you exist? <laughs> right. And I thought they were crazy. I thought Jesus probably wouldn't like me if I wasn't sure of his existence. But I felt like those were the most important questions in the world. They were pretty basic, and I had no proof. So I also had this goofy idea that there was one body of content that I was completely certain of, and that was the contents of my mind, which is ridiculous, but it is our Cartesian, our heritage from Descartes as the father of modern modernity in the 1600s, that I didn't know I was a baby Cartesian, but I was. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, it's interesting. So you're being brought up in a kind of Christian environment, presumably in a church environment, yeah. and you're starting to ask these deep questions about God and reality and what's going on. And you were, in a sense, fortuitous to come across through your mum, who, who brought books home to you, and you found at least, if not answers to your questions, at least you were introduced to a field of thinking that showed you that, oh, okay, other people are asking these questions too. Yeah, that's right. That was so important. It was the work of Francis Schaeffer, in case you've heard of him. And mm. yeah. uh, it was a book called The God Who Is There. It was a very difficult read, and I followed her red pencil underlinings through it and came away with the realization that my questions were not sin or private, but were actually philosophical, and responses to them had shaped whole cultural epochs across the disciplines. So I understood then that my questions were philosophical, but it took me a while then to find out that you could actually study philosophy. <laughs> you end up in this field. So this is where you yeah. go. It's fascinating that even as a 13-year-old, you were sort of heading in this direction. But you end up in this field of philosophy called epistemology. Can you please just give people a two-minute explanation of this field that you work in? How would you explain oh, it in, yeah. a, in a short Be happy way? to. So my questions were questions about knowing, and they were skeptical questions. So a skeptic is somebody who has doubts about knowing. Yeah. And so questions about knowing, whether we can know anything at all, or how it is that we know, or all those kinds of puzzlements, how do you know that it's knowledge, all those wonderful things. That field of formal study is called epistemology. So that's study of knowing in Greek. And I felt like I had no right to ask any questions besides the questions of knowing because I couldn't get past my questions of knowing. And actually, that's a very kind of modern idea of philosophy that the only legitimate philosophical study is epistemology. So I bought right into that. <laughs> it's interesting, isn't it, that though, that you're the sort of questions you're asking are even a very modern question. So that you yes. you've absorbed something as a I did. child. And so now you see, I try to collar everybody and say, look, you've got the same questions as me. It wasn't just me mm. as some goofy little girl. It's y'all, as we say. <laughs> as, you, as you say. As very, we, we like that phrase. So I see myself as having the job, first of all, to help people realize they've got the questions mm. and then how the baggage comes to expression in their lives and then what we can do about it. 
Now, are you ever, I wondered about this, are you ever frustrated or surprised at how many people don't ever ask themselves the deeper questions about the existence of God and meaning and purpose and reality as you described it, that kind of thing? No, because I think part of modernity's philosophy, its implicit dominating philosophy, is that it's an anti-philosophy, which is a contradiction. Mm. But because it exalts utility, philosophy and other things are deemed as useless. Most universities don't even have philosophy in the core. Mm. So this has been the battle fighting upstream I've had all my life. And I think it's to be expected if you're born into the modern West. So it seemed clear to me from the, the get-go, I think I'm kind of the oddball. But my job is to start with helping you see that philosophy is your birthright. There's one thing you need to be philosophical, and that's to be born. And so then I feel that philosophy, philosophizing, should be done for everybody. And it should not just be, as I say, the rock musicians who do philosophy in the streets. Yeah. Okay, so I've done the guild philosophy stuff, but I'd way rather talk to everybody. It's for all of us. And so I'm not done whatever my work is until I've done my best to try to express it. So it collars you yeah. and says, look, this is for you. You've enjoyed that, right? That part of it, trying to get it out to as many people as possible and have them thinking in these terms and getting excited by it. Well, if I just get it out to one and that changes their life, that's of infinite worth. (laughs) So the actual quantity doesn't matter so much because, you know, a single life is of infinite value. Okay, let's jump into some of the actual subject that you're into. What are the main ways people talk about knowing and ways of knowing? Now, one theory would be, and you've alluded to this already, rational thought. You know, that's a very enlightenment way of thinking. And you're saying this is a very dominant way to think about approaching anything like truth, right? Well, I actually, because I start with people in the streets, I start not with kind of the official bodies of sources and objects of knowledge in epistemology. I just don't do that. What I do is say, what's your neighbor think knowledge is? Hmm. You know, and I'm just looking for the default understanding. And it's generally that knowledge is information and data and facts. And it's bits of explicit statements and justification for that. So if that's what you mean by rational, but see, I'm going to change what rational is. (laughs) So so I'm not going to say knowledge is irrational. I'm going to reinvent rationality. So I usually start with that. And then what I do in my work is help you see what you're already doing when you know and doing it well, but you haven't been allowed to accredit. So I don't drop names of great philosophers very much. There is one philosopher I did my dissertational work on, um, but he's an unusual philosopher and not a main guy. His name is Michael Polanyi, and he was a Hungarian scientist scientific discoverer who then um, wandered off into epistemology because he felt that scientists didn't understand what they themselves were doing right. Hmm. So it's his epistemology that really sprang the lock on my cage and I think does for everybody else. So I've got to spend some time talking to you about what he said about what you are actually doing when you know. Yes. No, I want to, well, that's what I, I want to ask you about him because he's obviously had a huge influence on you. Let's talk about this concept and people have got to come with us here. 
of subsidiary focal integration. Now, that's sounding yeah, like a yeah, very yeah. technical term. Oh, but, it is. But what does it mean <laughs> and how does it apply to your area of work? Because I think this is fascinating. Yeah, so that is the account of knowing by Michael Polanyi. And I can teach it to you. You're already doing it. I just have to lay the accents on what you're doing in your life. And so if you think about bike riding, for example, mm-hmm. Polanyi said that all-knowing has this subsidiary, focal, integrative structure from two. So you rely subsidiarily on clues to focus on or shape a pattern that we then submit to as a token of reality. So if you think of keeping your balance on a bike, keeping your balance is subsidiary. That means you're attending from it, If you were to attend to it, you might fall off the bike. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Where you're attending is to the performance and, you know, your eyes are fixed down the road. You're thinking of all the places you might go on the roads. Mm -hmm. But that sense of keeping your balance, you know, it can, you can get it wrong. You can train it and get it even better. Uh, But it's not something you can put into words, but it's palpable. Mm -hmm. And so it's not subjectivistic. But it's bodied, and it is what Polanyi called subsidiary, not subconscious. It's not automatic, because you can be virtuoso about it, or you can be bad at it, right? But it is subsidiary. So you rely on your body and other things. You also rely on the words of the authoritative guide. My father was shouting at me, balance! <laughs> right? keep, keep and I was supposed to do that before I understood what the word meant. And then, you you know, you're also integrating the situation, you know, you're taking into consideration and subsidiarily and dwelling the gravel on the road and and the hill incline, you know, that sort of a thing, Um, the wind, the clothes you're wearing, all that kind of thing. And you're putting it together into a performance. And this actually becomes something you can do with artistry. So do you mean this as an analogy for how we approach reality? It's more than that. It's both an actual thing as well as an analogy, right? Well, I I would say it's the actual thing. Right, okay. And I hope that I can say enough about subsidiary focal integration that it will haunt you for the rest of your life so that you'll come to see that absolutely everything you do already is subsidiary focal integration. And how is that distinct from something else? So what's, what's this telling us about how we know things that's different from... Other ways we've been taught to well, common that. in uh, in the modern West and in philosophy and in our thinking is that we start with certainties, hmm. and that we start with focal bits. But if it's bike riding, you better not not start with either certainties or focal bits, or you'll be standing at the beginning line. You know what I'm saying? You won't get on the bike, yep. and you'll never you'll be blind to what to do. So here we love football of the pointed ball kind. Yes. So if you imagine a pro quarterback just standing on the 50-yard line reading the playbook or holding the playbook, that might be certain knowledge, but that sure is not what we pay him to do. <laughs> but when you actually see a football game, you're actually seeing subsidiary focal integration going on. And so you've got this artful relying on the playbook, relying on the offense, the defense, the play unfolding, relying on that to focus on getting the ball down the field. And every single 
kind of knowing has that structure. And then I think it helps people be better at their bottom line or their golf game or, or whatever it is. Yeah, so they're coming to understand the things they know as there's multiple inputs that are producing that. There's some sort right. of head knowledge, but there's an embodied experience as well. And there's almost like, a, I think you've talked about piano playing, which made sense to me, or typing on a keyboard, where you eventually you get to a point where you're not thinking about the actual activity. But you're bringing well, you are of, thinking about it, but you're thinking from it. Right, and that's right. the difference between on a piano, you could go into autopilot and then uh, you yes. stop and think what you're doing with your uh, thumb and it's all over. Right, so you need to be intentional about the subsidiaries and about the authoritative guide, your teacher, and and all those kinds of things. The music, I mean, all of that becomes subsidiary to the performance that you're you're attempting to accomplish. And so, really, where you really want your focus is communing with the audience, you know, or whoever you're playing for. The other thing, okay, so you asked me what's different about subsidiary focal integration, and I said the one thing is that it's got a quote-unquote foundation, but it's not explicit certainties. And on the other hand, there's um, philosophy that's known as non-foundationalism, and it's not that either, because you're rooted. If you can, if you're a good bike rider, you are connected in the world. You're rooted in the world, and the world is opening up to you. Hmm. And then the other thing I would say is, if you're on the way to a discovery, and you haven't figured it out yet, there's a whole lot of trust involved in that and a whole lot of giving yourself to this crazy contraption we call a bicycle. I was sure that no human being could balance on two points. Mm. I was just absolutely sure of that. I had to do some kind of override of that. So what happens is there's this responsible self-giving to trust what you have to understand. And that's what actually invites the discovery. And when you finally get it, that's really a gift from beyond. It's kind of a, an act of grace. So knowing is not this linear, add this up, and then you know add up all the premises, and then you've got some kind of sum total. It's not like that at all. It's not like that. In fact, Polanyi said, everybody knows you get the conclusion before you get the premises. Life and Faith, and I'm speaking with philosophy professor Esther Lightcap Meek. Now, Professor Meek thinks philosophy is for everyone. She works hard to describe how that's true, even when we don't realize it. Her quest as a young girl to understand how we know anything flowed naturally into understanding how we might know truth and ultimately know something about God. Obviously, my questions, my skeptical questions, one of them had to do with religion. Like, how do we know that God exists? And I had been taught a lot of Bible <laughs> by that point. And um, I had this question about this crazy thing that Christians do, that they read a book to tell them about something that's real that you don't see. And I thought, that just seems like the oddest thing ever. And one of the things that I was able to show with bike riding <laughs> is everybody's listening to an authoritative guide. <laughs> yes. So one time I had a student who was on a second career who was a, a retired F-16 fighter pilot. And when I said this about authoritative guides, he said, tell them, 
Tell them you cannot fly an F-16 without an authoritative guide. Yes. Uh, authoritative guides teach us to uh, see what is there. And we absolutely have to rely on the authoritative word as part of the sectors of clues that we integrate. So as I learned about subsidiary focal integration, it made my Christian belief unweird. Yeah, so there's this sense of um, the ways in which this created a framework for you in which your Christian belief could make sense. It doesn't confirm it necessarily, but at least gives you a sort of a whole lot of inputs here that I have to pay attention to that might, they might not either, but they might lead you towards a sort of a a solid belief, confidence in your belief. Well, and as one particular of that, what is it that you do with the Bible? Mm. Well, you don't want to fixate on it focally. What you want to do is subsidiarily indwell it. So you want to get so you wear it. Mm. And only then would you expect to be able to start to see the real. And that's what the Bible says. You want to know Jesus? You better start by obeying him. Yes, and now lots of people might resist that, like as in, no, no, I've got to get something before I'm willing to, you know, start to think in those terms. I I like how you talked about this sort of um, way in which the really real, there might be a two-way thing happening here. Yeah. And and that that (laughs) itself, and, and you could substitute the really real for God, say, but let's say there's an act of grace in both in in this becoming a two-way thing that we might be being approached by the really real and we have to have a a certain openness to that that's required in order for that interaction to take place and it's scary Mm. it's scary i mean really at at the end of the day how much do you really want to know god (laughs) you know And really, at the end of Longing to Know, which is my book for people considering Christianity who have questions about knowing, I kind of ask that. And my last chapter is called Being Known. Mm. So uh, a favorite old movie of mine, I don't know if your audience would remember this, but uh, The Hunt for Red October. Oh, yeah. um, I remember. Which was about uh, a Lithuanian-Russian captain uh, stealing a Soviet submarine. submarine. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Sean Connery, and, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah, oh, I know, I'm a fan. <laughs> so um, Jack Ryan has this um, wild hypothesis that the whole movie is about his showing everybody else that he's right. But when he boards the Red October and comes face to face with Captain Ramius, Ryan is no longer the one asking the questions. Mm. And Ramius is ruthless. <laughs> And it's this lovely dressing down. But if you read the Bible, that's the sort of thing you have the book of Job. You know, when God finally does show up after 38 chapters of the book, (laughs) Job is no longer the one asking the questions. And so really, how do you know it's real? Well, it kind of walks in. It doesn't answer your questions. It calls you on the carpet and asks you the question. You are now the questioned. And um, that's pretty scary. I call it sweet terror, mm. you know, because mm. Job, I mean, Job has no answer except I'm really, really sorry. But he has been visited by the presence of the living God. Bam. So this is the Old Testament book of Job for people who don't yeah. know that. But um, 
Yes, that's quite a stunning moment, isn't it? After a, quite yeah. a long book. Now, you've, you've used the term covenant epistemology to yeah. kind of classify this modelling of knowing that you've adopted, as you said, from Michael Polanyi. Now, in describing that, you said that you're in contacting reality. It's almost as if reality contacts back. It's like this potential yeah. for the person left asking, how can we ever really know anything? I, I feel like there's, there's something here that's important where you could rightly be left as the 13-year-old going, well, how do I know anything and how do I trust yeah. anyone? One thing that might give you a bit of confidence is if there is a reality like God and he starts to approach us, there's potential, right, for that. And I guess that's where you've you've managed to get to in your own life, where you feel like that has happened and you mm -hmm. feel it not just intellectually but spiritually and bodily. Is that right? Yeah. Well, reality shows up. I think reality is God and his stuff. And uh, I, I'm as merry about learning about rose bushes <laughs> as anything at this point. And, and really what I, the term covenant epistemology does grow out of this idea that um, when the real seems to show up, things happen. And actually the, the line, uh, the claim of Michael Polanyi's that I actually did my dissertation on that I fell in love with, this is the baby skeptic, Polanyi the discoverer would say, you know, you've made contact with reality when you have a sense of the possibility of indeterminate future manifestations. So an unspecifiable sense of a broad range of inexhaustive possibilities. That he couldn't even say the word real without uttering something like that. And that was the water of life for me, the baby skeptic, that he's telling me you can make contact with reality. So it took me some decades to believe that. <laughs> But, you see, I was trying in longing to know to get at this idea that when the real shows up, it's abundant and it's kind of person-like. So there's an infinity to it that would be like the infinity of knowing a person. So I think a great example is getting to know a person and finding out, oh, there's more. And you have this sense of, of even more and this sense of even more. And if you've got a good sense of that, you know the person. But the person is both known and mysterious at the same time. And I think that's just kind of, I, I think in modernity, we have denuded reality and we've made it into two-dimensional bits that are meaningless. And, you know, we have committed a sin of epistemology, but we've also committed a sin of metaphysics or a sin against the real in disavowing it and putting it at arm's length. So rather, if we could say, here I am, please come, right? There's an it just might show up. <laughs> so that yeah. got me to the idea that the knower yet to be known dance is an interpersonal relationship. And then the word covenant gets at this idea that really, and I was saying this and longing to know, if you want reality to graciously self-disclose to you, it's kind of like a marriage. you got to promise to love, honor, and obey first. And you actually have to find a way to live life on the terms of the thing that you want to know. So if you want to become a pianist, how many hours do you have to spend in position on the piano bench, right? So it's a matter of obedience to the yet to be known. 
to listen, to obey it, to invite it to come. So we love in order to know. Knowledge isn't this information dump. Mm. It just isn't. That's the other thing. If you fixate on information, you're blinded to the real. So if you were on your bike to look down at your foot on the pedal, that would be bad. Mm. And so really the modernist model of knowledge actually blinds us to the real. And I'm talking football as well as God. I like the um, the way in which you talk about it's a, it's a relationship. And also the knowing someone entails both some knowledge but also some mystery. And do you think the modernist tendency is to reduce mystery? We don't, we're not, yeah. we don't like that. At another level, we do accept the mysterious in our lives. Right. And the things that aren't pinned down. My job is not to give you something new that you haven't been doing before. I'm just relaying the accents on what you've been doing all your life. So if you made your marriage about a list of information, your spouse would probably be right to be upset. Yeah. Right? And we all know that. <laughs> These days, there's a certain way of thinking that would would even consider truth as an oppressive thing. And yet the Christian people want to say that the truth will set you free. Yeah. It's an interesting dynamic today, isn't it? Well, truth is a fun word. We've tended to foreground the idea that truth is correctness of propositions. But there's better meanings of true. I think the carpenters have a really good one. Carpenters and the plumbers. And that means things line up, Mm. right? So there's got to be some kind of uh, falling into line with what's already there. And if you've got something that's bodied, and by the way, we are not disembodied minds, you know? We're particular bodies. We have backs. We need other people to scratch our backs. We can't even see our backs, right? So there's a particular... My eyes only face this way. But I'm embodied and... I can trust it, and I can get better at trusting it, right? And I can orient toward the world. If I want to see, let's say, Jupiter and the moons of Jupiter, I've got to lower myself behind the telescope. So there's this sense of getting yourself into position to orient toward the world. And then that's more the idea of wisdom or prudence, how you do that. And we really, our lives are to grow that kind of, savvy, that kind of know-how. And then there's the other meaning of true, which is pledge. You pledge to love, honor, and obey. So I need to be true to my garden if it's going to be anything. I have to attend to it. I have to look for bugs. I have to prune it right, not wrong, all that stuff. That makes way more sense in a covenantal understanding of true. Maybe we've been misguided by the internet and phones, you know, we can come up with all kinds of information. It can be addictive and distracting, but don't let it model your epistemology. You know, let your garden or your horseback riding or whatever it is. The other thing that this way of approaching knowledge seems to open up in a way that some of modernity doesn't is it leaves room for imagination because imagination attached to something real opens up a whole lot of possibilities, doesn't it? And, and right. you might be losing those otherwise. Well, I would put imagination at the core of knowing. Yeah. It drives it. 
And so for Polanyi, what he meant by intuition was you have this sense of a half-hidden vision that guides you, and then subsidiarily you are doing this imaginative scrabbling to try to get to that vision. So it's at the heart of this creative ransacking that you're doing to try to get toward the pattern. My father yelled balance. Somehow my body had to creatively, imaginatively put myself into those words to try to get to the pattern. This has been Life of Faith with me, Simon Smart. Thanks today to Professor Esther Meek. Esther is the author of Longing to Know, also Loving to Know, and A Little Manual for Knowing. Esther will be appearing at Gospel Conversations Conference in Sydney on Saturday, August 22. Faith in the Fog of Reality is the title of that conference, which will also feature speakers Sarah Goldsby-Smith and Mark Strom. CPX is supporting this conference. It will be fascinating. You can see details at gospelconversations.com. And while we're talking about events coming up, CPX's public lecture this year will be given by Andy Crouch. Hello, I'm Andy Crouch, and I am so looking forward to delivering the Richard Johnson lecture this September on a subject that is of incredible importance to our society and to our lives as individuals and family members and community members, technology. Uh, An incredibly successful human enterprise that also is strangely disappointing and disorienting and has had very mixed effects on us as human beings and as human societies. And I want to explore why this has happened, but also the different course that we could take because I believe we could change course toward a better use of technology for human flourishing in the world. It's going to be a great honor to deliver this lecture. I look forward to seeing you there. Andy's topic, Disconnected, Why Technology Keeps Disappointing Us. Now, Andy will be brilliant. The lecture is in Sydney on September 1 and Melbourne on September 5. He'll also be speaking at Bible Society Australia's Bible Conference in Sydney on September 2 as well. If you're any chance of getting to these events, don't miss them. We'll put details on all this in the show notes. Next week. Those galaxies are just baby galaxies that we're seeing. They're what we call proto-galaxies. They have some stars and some gas, but they're not very massive. But we can't see all the way back to the very beginning. That's what everybody would like to know.